0: So this is going to sound weird, but about 17 years ago, when I was a writer at Newsday, I was granted a sit-down interview with a presidential candidate. It wasn't George W. Bush or John Kerry or John Edwards or even Dick Gephardt. Nope, it was Lyndon LaRouche, the perennial candidate whose headquarters were based in Virginia. I pitched the story to one of my editors, and it was approved. So I drove down south to the LaRouche headquarters, tiptoed past a bunch of heavily armed security guards, and listened as Lyndon LaRouche spewed all sorts of conspiracy theories about coups and militias and government spying on his pets. When I left, I thought, that's the craziest shit I've ever experienced. And then Donald Trump and 2020 America came along.
1: My name is Jeff Promen. Hey, what? I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of two writers slinging Yang, The podcast for one writer, me... Fox writing with another writer every week. Today's episode stars Michael S. Schmidt, my second straight Pulitzer winner. Michael is a reporter for the New York Times who, among other things, broke the story of Hillary Clinton's emails. His new book, Donald Trump V. The United States, is the breathtaking insider story of what's going down in Crazy Town.
0: This is episode number 180.
1: Let's sling some yang. Dad, being thing sucks, and so does the podcast.
0: All right. Well, first of all, thank you for doing this. I, uh, I, you look very comfortable. I feel like you look very comfortable right now. You got your coffee. You're in your plush chair. You're in a sweatshirt. How are you?
2: Good. I'm uh, pandemic, uh, pandemic ready.
0: I have a question I've wanted to ask you for years. Years and years and years. And I know it's a question you've been asked 8,000 times, but I feel compelled to ask it because I've never asked you this. By the year 1983, Mike Schmidt was well established as one of the all-time great Major League Baseball players and arguably the greatest third baseman of all time. He'd won two MVPs already. At that time, he was a like, 10-time All-Star. I would think if there's like, a famous like Michael Jackson, someone with the last name Jackson, probably not naming their kid Michael, were your parents unaware of Mike Schmidt or big fans of Mike Schmidt or neither? I think neither. They certainly were aware of Mike Schmidt, aware
2: to the point that when I was born, they sent my birth announcement to him, which he signed. Whoa. Yeah. So they were certainly aware of it. My father was a baseball fan, but I think they really just liked the name Michael. Now, this was 1983. We were living in New York. We weren't living in Philadelphia. Um, Yes, Mike Schmidt was a well-established baseball player. I don't think it's like naming your kid Michael Jordan I don't think that Mike Schmidt is at the level of a Michael Jordan or a Michael Jackson. Um, it's something that I have lived with, but not in a way that I thought got in the way of anything. Like if my name was Michael Jordan.
0: So when you were uh, growing up, it wasn't like you didn't get like uniform number 20. You wouldn't put it third base. You weren't assume. I mean, to be- I, I, he- I,
2: hear, I, hear, I heard things about it. And it comes up and it comes up every once in a while, um, you know, at least several times a year in when I meet people uh, that, you know, that's certainly that I've never met before. Um, but it's not like a, it's not like a hindrance. I never found it as such as a sports reporter. So I started my career as a sports reporter. I covered off the field, legal issues, drugs, and sports. And I actually was able to use it to my advantage occasionally because I would call the players union. And if you call the players union and you're a player, <laughs> then the head of the players union, Don Fear, or the top lawyer, Michael Weiner, would stop everything and get on the phone. So they didn't like me too much and they didn't like my coverage. But I would call the main operator and say, Hey, it's Mike Schmidt. Is Don Fear there? And Don Fear would quickly pick up. And then he would quickly realize it was not the Mike Schmidt that he thought it was. That is amazing yeah
0: yeah that's a fantastic name usage
2: every every year or so or two i get a very detailed text message from tim mccarver that's not for me
0: (laughs) that's for the other mike
2: schmidt it's amazing
0: yeah (laughs) do you write back yeah good hearing from you or did you say you got the wrong mike schmidt again tim i think i have sort of like a like a not an auto reply to it, but there's
1: like
2: this funny refrain that I've replied to it on a few times, or at least that I thought was funny. Um, But uh, yeah. And they're really detailed
0: stuff about baseball history or the relationship or whatever. It's pretty interesting. I got this hemorrhoid. It's really frustrating. I don't know if you, (laughs) it's not that bad. Yeah. Um, So when I went to, uh, to buy your book, I went out here in LA to Chevalier's bookstore. Uh, Donald Trump versus the United States, inside the struggle to stop a president. I was overwhelmed by the sheer number of political books and specifically Trump books. I I don't think it was this way with Obama or Bush or even Clinton. To this degree, the massive amounts of books. And this is, you know, this is very much a writing podcast and very much a sort of promoting writing also podcast. And I wonder, when you have a book coming out, And it is about a subject that at least to a certain degree is being chronicled by a million different books, other books at the same time. Is that a daunting thing to step into? Are you worried about that when you're writing the book? Is it not a thought at all and you just live in a bubble? Like how do you sort of, how did you address that as it was happening?
2: So I think that it is totally front of mind and also something you have no control over and have to put aside. And those are obviously potentially competing notions. But let me sort of explain how I looked at it. I came to the conclusion that I had to do more than simply chronicle what had gone on. I had to try and write something that had a larger meaning because I thought it would be competing with a lot of different books. And in order for it to stand out, it had to do more and it had to reach for more. So that notion was very front of mind. It was also front of mind that a lot of this stuff had been covered, and that was particularly the case on the issue of Jim Comey, because Comey had written a book, he testified before Congress several times, there had been inspector general's reports about him, he had been on television, he had been on a speaking tour, he had been in the newspaper a ton, and I basically came to the conclusion, I was like, I don't want to write about Jim Comey. There's nothing left to say about him. And the editors were sort of like, look, you you got to write about Comey. You've, you know, that was something you intimately covered, that you intimately know. You have to write it. And I thought a lot about it. And I said, I said, I got to come up with some way to write about Comey that's fresh. And that was going to be really hard. So I thought about it and I did some reporting and I realized that it was going to be very hard on top of all of this for the reader to relate to an FBI director. You and I will never be the FBI director. We don't totally understand what it is to be the FBI director, but we do know what it's like to watch a loved one go through something painful. So what if we moved the camera and we told the story of Comey? through his wife, and we watch the story through the eyes of his wife, because we may be able to understand that story a little bit better. And it's a new angle that's never been told before, and it's a different way of coming at a historically important thing. I said, look, I said to myself, look, Comey is historically a really, really important figure. Anything that illuminates the decisions that he made is essential to history. So how can I do that in a way that's new and fresh? And that was Patrice Comey. That's how we found Patrice Comey and wrote
0: the story of him through his wife. Right, so I'm literally staring. I was actually going to ask you about this. I'm page 194, you wrote, um, around 2, o'clock, uh, 2 p.m. West Coast time, Comey began, began addressing a group of support staff in a large room. On the other side of the country in northern Virginia, Patrice was having happy hour at a friend's house. She received a text from a friend. Is it true? Patrice had no idea what the friend was talking about. She then received a flurry of other texts from other friends asking if it was true what they were saying about Comey. Patrice called her husband. What is happening? Patrice asked. By that point, Comey had seen his firing already being discussed on cable television. but he had not heard from anyone in Washington. I don't know what's going on. He told Patrice, I'll call you back. And Patrice is is, to me the most gripping, fascinating character in this book. Um, I'm with you a thousand percent. How do you actually get the wife of James Comey To trust you to open up to you to the degree that she does here because it's easy it's one thing to get an interview get a couple of interviews but she clearly trusted you and sort of opened up to you and that's not easy shit to do in this job so i thought the thing about patrice comey was that
2: it was probably really really difficult to be jim comey but it was probably really really difficult to be patrice comey and my guess was that No one had sort of come to Patrice in that way and said, hey, like, I know that you're not your husband and you weren't the FBI director, but you've had to live through this. What's that been like? And saying, look, it's an essential, important way of trying to tell this story and just sort of ask her that and say, well, what what happened? And that's sort of how I came at it. Sort of saying, look, like, forget about your husband like you know the whole world will has their own feelings about him and he's a big big boy and you know he'll he'll be fine whatever what's it been like for you and what's it been like to watch this and that's sort of how I came at it and I said but you know what you know what is that and you just listen and you just listen and
0: do you literally call her one day? Is that how you get her? Like you just call the Comey, you have a number for the Comeys, you call and you say, hey, this is Michael Schmidt from the New York Times, blah, 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 blah.
2: No, I mean, without getting into all the the, the, the theatrics of reporting and trying to whatever, I basically said, like, um, I think there may be a different way to tell this story. Um, I'd really like to sit down and, and just talk to Patrice and just, you know, just, you know, see what, you know, what, what this has been like. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just sort of, it's it's not that simple, but I knew that I had to find a different way to tell the story and I knew I had to, I knew I had to go out and try and find that. And it took a really, really long time to figure out. But like many ideas that eventually work, I mean, I think this, this part worked. In hindsight, it seems really clear. It's like, well, if you've got this guy and you've written all about him and it's hard to relate to him and people don't really want to spend a lot of time trying to understand how he sees the world, what's a different way of doing it? Oh, uh, through the intimate relationship with his wife. I mean, it sort of, as a storyteller, looking back on it makes a lot of sense. It took a really long time to get there. And once I
0: did, It wasn't
2: easy, but it
0: was much, much easier. Could you have still pulled it off this way if she was not a likable person? Let's say you interviewed her a bunch and you just found her to be unlikable and argumentative and kind of a jerk. Could you do you still go through the wife? Or does does she need to be somewhat sympathetic?
2: I don't know if I look at it that way. I just look at I'm just trying to tell the story of these individual people. And I believe that most individual stories, if you look for what makes the people compelling can be made compelling. Like if she wasn't sympathetic, I don't think I would have said, Oh, this is a bad idea. I shouldn't do this. Um, I think that, that it's, I kind of realized this in writing the book that, you know, you really have to write from one perspective. And by that, I mean, on, one sort of individual, because I think it's too hard to write from multi perspectives, so I think a lot of people in nonfiction write from maybe an omnipotent view or a view of 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 um, of themselves as the reporter. I think the more successful I was was when I was concentrating on just writing the pieces through one individual at a time and I think that that made it more compelling to keep the, the lens focused as much as possible in on these individuals and try and cut out everything else around them. Because I think that this, this isn't a fully formed thought. I wish I'd, I, I mean, I've thought a lot about this, but I haven't articulated it that well, but I guess what I'm saying is that I thought I would be more successful the more that I kept the lens focused in on, specific individuals for as long as possible Mm -hmm. and instead of writing about 10 different people focusing on five people and going as deep as I could go on them to tell their story because I think that you end up an inch deep in a lot of different characters so there's like a handful of characters that I focus on in the book and I try not to deviate from them um, and I try and stay on them as much as possible and I think that's more powerful that's what I'm trying to say
0: well, I was going to say, one thing that I find really, really... So I had a book come out uh, right around the same time as yours about the Shaq Hobi-era Lakers. Uh, not the same weight, but, you know, same idea. And a lot of what I do... I mean, I exactly what you were saying is, is I think of this all the time. Like, you, it's important to have characters you can kind of hang on and characters who carry the narrative. And, and one thing I find very difficult, though, and I thought you pull off really well and I think I fail at, let's say uh, whoever... Rick Fox is a major character. And I will go into Rick Fox's backstory and kind of who Rick Fox is. But then I find it very hard to keep with him as the book moves and the narrative moves. And I don't know, did you, I find that sometimes my books bounce. Like it'll be Rick Fox here and then Nick Van Exel here and then Shaq here. And it's hard to keep them all in the narrative together flowing at the same time. That is something I really struggle with. Did you not find that very difficult?
2: So what I did is I just followed, I had a narrative that I was going to follow. And like, there's sort of an arc to the the arc of the book and the story. And I was just going to follow that. And these characters were going to come and go when they were important to that central line. I think that the more people that you cut out, the better that it is. And I think you have to realize, and I tried to realize this, that sometimes you, as the author, find something really, really interesting and really, really compelling. But that does not always translate to what's really interesting and compelling to the reader. Right. And the more that you cut out, the better. I mean, I basically cut – I mean, I've, I've got different estimates on this. I've never gone back. I basically cut somewhere between 60, 70, 80,000 words out of the book.
0: Oh, my God. And <laughs> – and, What what's uh, that
2: like? I mean, it was painful, but it made it better. Yeah. So, you know, I I just think that 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 and and I, and I'm not a film person, and I don't really even think of myself as a storyteller. I think of myself as a newspaper reporter, and the way I kind of thought about this at times was like. We need to focus the lens. Like we're gonna, like we've been looking at Comey from a ninety degree angle. We're now gonna look at him from a forty five degree angle, focused in on his wife. We're gonna tell the story differently that way.
0: Right. Wait. So this book weighs in at four hundred thirty two pages. So, which is not that much longer than mine. And my book was, I think, one hundred fifty thousand words. From so I'm, I'm thinking you must have handed in this book at a robust. 230,000 words, 240,000 words. Well, there's different iterations. There were different sort of iterations. It's not like it
2: came in as, you know, it was, you know, it came in in different pieces. Um, but, you know, there's a lot still on the, on the floor. I mean, I don't think there's anything that's truly essential to um, our understanding of Donald Trump that we don't know. Um, but it, um,
0: you know, I, I realized the more and more that I cut
2: the better and better it got.
0: So interesting. Um, I hate cutting. I hate cutting. Like I hate, it kills me, but I think you said something that's dead on, which is just because you find something interesting doesn't actually mean it translates well to the story or has anything to do with the story. Sometimes you just find it interesting and you find yourself fighting to keep it in. And at the end of the day, the book is actually better or something that you personally value. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It, 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 it's because like, My guess is that like these, and I, and I haven't read your book and and now I will, especially after talking about it this way, but the, like, um, it's like you as a, as a reporter, as an author, you may find like Nick Van Exel, like really interesting or, or, or like really essential, but like, there's only so many different places you can go with these other characters until you're sort of off on another path. And I kind of was like, the more we just focused on these individuals and like trying to get inside their mind and body in the room with the president and like what it's like trying to stop a president, I thought the more successful that I was going to be. But I don't know if that, that translated. I mean, that may not have translated.
0: I thought it did. Um, well, you opened the book. It's funny. I am. I, um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of strong openers in uh, books. And I loved, I loved the beginning of your book. I thought it, it it was, it sounds like a movie reviewer, but I thought it was, it it grabbed you immediately. And I was thinking as a journalist, like, so you're here, you are, you're in DC and you're literally chasing Don McGahn, the white house uh, Counsel, trying to get him before he gets to the white house. And you're, you're running down the street, but you don't want the secret service to think you're some crazy person. I'm fascinated by those moments. That adrenaline and that rush, but do you have nervousness in those moments as well, or are you a guy who is just full bore? I'm going up to you. I'm asking my questions. What's the worst that can happen?
2: I think it's a mix of of things. I think that after being a reporter, I've been a reporter now for 15 years. You kind of become numb to a lot of things that. You weren't numb to earlier in your career. So, I remember the first time that I wrote on Deadline at the Times, and like I could literally feel the anxiety in my body. I mean, like in ways that I had never felt anxiety before. And now, today, I sit down and do that, and I don't have those feelings. So, I'm either repressed those feelings or I've gotten past them or whatever. So, I think there's a certain numbness that if you do this for a while, this sort of comes over you. Um, There's a lot of things that I still don't like to do that I have to force myself to do. And I don't think in that moment I had to force myself to do that. I just thought I had a shot at getting McGann and I had to do everything to take that. But there's a lot of phone calls that I end up making or questions that I ask that I often feel uncomfortable about and I'm often pushing myself outside my comfort zone that wasn't one of them because I just thought it was a unique opportunity um, but I've gotten better at it as I become more numb to it
0: so what are the like what is the um? you have a call you just really dread right which we all have a call you really dread how do you actually get yourself up to doing it or what do you have to tell yourself or you know or a door you have to knock on, or you know whatever.
2: I just tell myself that it's essential to what I'm trying to do, and that I know that it's going to be painful, but that I know that I've been in this situation hundreds of times before, and I survived that to get to this point. And if I could survive awful calls that I had to make in 2007 or 2006 to the commissioner's office about steroids. And I survived that to get, to still be on the field playing. And I've done it a lot of times since then. And I can survive this.
0: The thing is the worst thing that happens on a phone call is someone says, fuck off and hangs up on you. Like it's not, it always seems the anxiety I have is worse than reality, even when the reality is the worst it can be.
2: Yeah. And I think it's like, look, I survived these other things. So if I survived these other things, and like, I can't even remember all of them. And, you know, you have, you know, scars and scrapes and such, but you're still out doing what you're doing and you're still intact Then say, well, I can, I, I think I can get through it again. Yeah.
0: This may be a dumb question, but um, although my dad always said there are no such things as dumb questions, which I, I don't know if I agree with, but uh, March 2nd, 2015, you obviously you write a story that kind of goes, you know, nuclear Hillary Clinton used personal email account at State Department possibly breaking rules. The lead was Hillary Rodham Clinton exclusively used a personal email account to conduct government business as Secretary of State, State Department officials said, and may have violated federal requirements that officials' correspondence be uh, retained as part of the agency's record. And this story obviously just went, and I wonder, when you reported it and when you wrote it, do you know at that time, that it's going to be as big as it is? Or does it feel sort of like another day at the New York Times?
2: Sort of somewhere in between at the time. I thought it was significant. And I thought it was a potential problem. I didn't think it was going to become what it became, but I don't think anyone did. And you would need to have a real imagination to do that. But I thought it was significant. I knew it was something significant and different and that I was heading into um, an area of coverage that was going to be different than what I had done before. I, 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 had a sense of that. I don't think I had a, I obviously didn't have a sense of what it would become because it's like a very hard thing to predict, but I, I thought it was, it was going to be, um, it was going to be something that lived on more than one story. Um, you know, that there would be, you know, live on for a few weeks at least um, you know, and you have to remember that's a different type of news cycle. I mean, that's five years ago, but it's, you know, things were more lasting and stayed around for longer, um, certainly than they do today. And um, obviously, it kicked around longer um, than, than I thought it would. Um, but it's kind of like, like with these stories, it's like, you, you don't really know. So you just kind of just, you know, you just kind of, and you don't know when you receive a tip, like, what it's going to turn into. And I certainly, when I found out about that, I didn't think it would turn into what like even the, the initial tip, the initial information that I had on it. Um, but it's like this kind of thing where you have to run out all these things. You just run them out, run them out, run them out um, because that's the only way to find out if there's really anything there. Um, and part of that process is doing the story
0: to see you know what the significance is about it. Do you feel like people have their, people's expectations, like you read a lot of, like Woodward's book comes out just as an example. And there's a lot of, if you knew this, why didn't you release it earlier, right? And your story comes out in Hillary Clinton and the ensuing stories after that. And it's, God, man, don't you see? You heard her campaign, blah, blah. Like, it feels like the expectations for people in your position, in Woodward's position, it used to be just report the news, do a really good job, just report the news. That's what your job is. It seems like more people are expecting you guys to use your judgment to make sure what comes from that news isn't, what they would consider bad. Do you know what I mean? Do you feel that at all, that people have different expectations for what the byproduct of your reporting will be and that you should take some responsibility for that in a weird way?
2: Yeah, I think that in this super partisan moment, um, and I, I think that sometimes that's also sort of a ridiculous kind of like the super partisan moment, because a lot of moments that, you know, even in the 90s were super partisan. Um, but I think that there's sort of a misunderstanding of, of what uh, we're there for as journalists, what we're there to do and our role. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of times I think that all we really do is just write things for one side to use against the other. Um, I realize that that our things get pulled in different directions by the extreme, the extreme 10% on one side and the extreme 10% on the other, who are really, really loud. Um, and that in the middle, the people that uh, rely on our information um, as citizens to assess the world um, are far less vocal. Um, so it may feel like you're getting tugged um, from the left and the right um, you know, by those, 10, those polar 10% on each side uh and you you don't hear a lot from those people in the middle um but there does seem to be a misunderstanding that uh you know that 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 we do we're here to do more than just tell you the story um and i think we're here just to tell you the story uh and to give you context and the facts and do it in a way without fear or favor uh that is not a popular view of the world today to look at the world for you know, to try and look at the world in an unbiased view and a non-political view—that's just not a popular
0: view today.
1: Before we continue, at Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter Casey, and we're talking 503 Sports.
1: Wait, Dad, can we give it a rest for a second? Why? I don't want to talk 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. I want to talk voting. I'm only seventeen, so I'm too young to vote. But most people listening to this podcast are just a few years away from dead, and they should all be voting. So if you have yet to vote, do it. Please, please do it. For our country, for our democracy, and for Craig Penrose, former Denver Gold quarterback.
0: What does Craig Penrose have to do with this?
1: I just thought I'd throw you a bone.
0: This um this episode comes out it's coming out the day before the election. And I wonder, um, if you're someone in your shoes. Where you report on politics and you, you you report on these figures and like to 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 most of us Tuesday feels like uh, like D Day, like we're terrified. I personally am terrified, you know, and I I just you know anxiety wouldn't even begin to describe it. And I'm always fascinated. Like if you are as close to it as you are, does that in a way do you think lead to less anxiety than people who see it in a much it's much more abstract to me than it probably is to you doesn't do you think you see it in a different way
1: i
2: do think we see it in a different way and but i'm not exactly sure um how different because i'm not sure because i for, i often forget what it was like to be sort of on the other side as someone not covering this stuff um, i don't forget i just think that I'm more used to it now, from looking from it from where I sit. But I think that, um, you know, in certain ways, you know, um, you're less concerned about other things and more concerned about others. Look, there is a uh, this 25-page document that was written by this. I believe she's a professor professor at Georgetown about that was a tabletop exercise done this summer on how the election could go wrong. Uh, with different people playing different roles. And by the end of it, California is seceding from the union and stuff and how the election could go wrong. Like, um, Um, as someone that sort of had some grasp on politics in the moment and read that document, I was terrified um, about about how the election could spin out of control and there would be no clear victor. Um, And, you know, I have some sense of how the government in Washington works to the point where, like, maybe this wasn't as far-fetched as – you know, the average person who who probably didn't hear about the document and wasn't following the study that was done at Georgetown and, um, you know, uh, has more confidence in in the government. Um, So so I don't know. I think that it's not really a great answer to your question, but I think that's something that I learned in the book and that I wrote about is that if you're the average person, okay, you probably think of the government as something that, may or will be there for you, if there's a flood, if there's a fire, if there is a crime, that you can call 911 and the government will be there. Or if there is a natural disaster, FEMA will be there. The government will be there in some sort to do something to protect you. And I think people take a lot of confidence and comfort in that, even if they don't like government. They take confidence in the fact that there is some larger entity out there looking out for people's well-being. Just a very, very basic level. And the thing I realized in the book, and, and I learned this sort of in reporting out the Comey part of the story, is that at the end of the day, if you're at the top of the government, there's no other government there to help you out. There's no other government to call to bail you out. You're the 911 operator who has no other 911 operator to call. So if you're the FBI director, and you can't stop the president. It's not like you can call the police to ask for help. If you're the White House counsel and you can't stop the president, there's no one else to call. And that that phenomenon only exists because you're at the top of the government. And these are literally just human beings trying to run the government and they're only as good as what they can do. And if they can't stop something, there's nothing else that can be done. There's no one there is no one else to call. And to me, sort of that idea, and I and I, and I still don't think I always articulate the right way, but when you're at the top, there's, there's nothing else that can really be done. If the government can't stop the coronavirus pandemic, like just putting aside the politics of how it's gone on, if the government can't stop that, or it can't stop a natural disaster, there's no one else that can do that. Right. No other government to call. And I sort of have come to appreciate that phenomenon, and that is a pretty scary phenomenon.
0: That was depressing. <laughs> does that make sense? I mean, does yeah, it make it makes, sense it makes a lot of sense? It's just
2: yeah. Because, like, you you're sitting there, and like, you're out there in California, and if something goes wrong, you think, in some shape or form, the government will be there. Maybe the police won't show up as quickly as you think. Maybe they won't show up and do exactly the right thing. Maybe the fire department won't show up. And completely save the house, but they'll be there to do something. Right. But like when you're the 911, there's no one else to call. So like if, if that can't be stopped, if the government can't stop it, there's no other government there to help. And that is the thing that I tried to capture in the books the font pho- phenomena of what is it like to stand between the president and the abyss? If there's someone who is working at a company or an organization who is doing something that people think is wrong, they're ostracized, they're punished. And they, and, and sometimes people get rid of them. When it's the president of the United States, that's much, much more difficult to do.
0: Does it, would you say the book carries a um, a certain understanding that Trump is a pretty shitty president?
2: I don't think I try and look at it that way. I think I, I don't. And as a journalist, I leave that up to the reader to to figure out. The reader can make their own conclusions. There's enough people in this country to provide their own thoughts and opinions on Donald Trump's behavior. It's like I get up in the morning and it's like, okay, what is the story? How are we gonna tell the story? And how how can we make sure that it's as accurate as possible um, as fair and thorough and cogent? If I wake up in the morning trying to make arguments about why certain things should be one way or the other, or are one way or the other, or, or I'm trying to, you know,
0: put my view on it. It's just going to send me off course. Right. Do you, um, it's funny. I have in my like Twitter bio, I think I did it one time, at least, you know, New York times bestselling author of blank. And every now and then I'll write some political thought and someone will say you're just some hack from the New York times, fake news. And I'm like, I don't even work for the New York times but you actually do work for the New York times and the New York times has been the target of the fake news hashtag about 8 million times. And I was, I was wondering how does that affect if at all sort of you and perception of you and your career and walking into a place, does it has the attack on the media had an impact on you? Me personally, professionally.
2: I I mean, I'm not sure. I think that I have a more well-formed thought on the fact that that we can't look past the fact that a lot of damage has been done to the media by the simple fact that the person with the biggest bullhorn in the country has said the things that he has about the media. That as much as you or I will say, look, you know, we know it's not true, and we know it's an exaggeration, and it's ridiculous, and whatever. I think that that we have to sort of be open with ourselves that 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 has been a damaging thing. And the total damage that has been done by that, I don't think has been assessed and we won't really know for some time. But I think that we have to basically look at that and say, look, when the person who most people hear says the things that he does about you, it does do damage. And I'm not sure how to repair that, but I think the first part of that is recognizing the fact that it it is something that's been damaging.
0: Yeah, um, you're uh, I won't get too into it, but your your rise fascinates me. We went to similar, similar journalistic institutions. I went to Delaware. You went to Lafayette. Neither would be called a journalistic powerhouse uh, for you know. Um, you wind up at the Times in two thousand five as a clerk on the foreign desk, and I've I've known people who have clerked at the Times, and it's basically considered a great way to get a job at the you know Sun Sentinel or Houston chronic, you know, whatever, some other paper. It's very rare that clerks end up on there. You're being a clerk doesn't sound particularly fun. Um, Or am I wrong? Is it actually a great gig?
2: So the problem with me as a clerk is that I wasn't really interested in clerking. (laughs) And that that didn't make me like a fan favorite amongst the administrators on the desks. Um, Because I basically was like, saw it as like this opportunity to try and become a reporter at the New York Times. Even though when I was hired as a clerk, I was hired as a clerk in July of 2005, they said to me, like, look, we're never going to make you a reporter at the New York Times. You want to be a reporter at the New York Times, you can go to, you know, the Altoona Times and the Dallas Morning News and the Washington Post, and then we'll look at you. And then like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, like, I, I, I really want to be a reporter at the New York Times. And I basically was like, okay, like, how can I try and do this. So I took on every assignment I could. I covered murders in the Bronx and Brooklyn. Um, you know, they how did you even out. get
0: the assignment? though? if you were a clerk, because, like,
2: so, so the thing about the times at the times, that the times was sort of a, had a, a, a like full robust, uh, Metro section and it had a full robust sports section that covered every whiff and blow of New York city, New York, um, sports, So when you're doing that as a newspaper, you need people at the bottom ends to do a lot of these things to, to provide that coverage. You're, you're relying on stringers to do a lot of that, that stuff. And it was in the course of that, that I started to do these, these assignments for the Metro desk. And then one day towards the end of the 2005 baseball season, the a signing uh, baseball editor in sports went to the Metro desk and said they needed someone to go to Yankee stadium to do Steinbrenner duty, which was to stand outside the stadium. um, After the game, you'd sit in the press box during the game. And then after the game, you'd go down and get a quote from Steinbrenner as he left the game, because we were afraid if we didn't have someone there, that he would say something that would turn into uh, the, the, you know, the, the front, the back page of the, the tabloids the next day. Um, So that is how I sort of got my start in sports um, was taking on these assignments. And I basically realized that if, you know, the only thing I could do to prove myself was to do, so I had to take on anything and do anything. um, And that every opportunity was an opportunity to prove myself. Um, And basically I just, I just did that and did that um, until they made me a reporter.
0: Wait, so I, I mean, my, I have a very similar arrive at Sports Illustrated as a reporter, take every assignment they're throwing at me, do anything they want me to do, blah, 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 blah. And you end up having a lot of people who find you obnoxious and overzealous and, you know, rambunctious to a negative. And um, was there a negative response from people who are like, listen, man, get, just get my coffee. You're not here to do that. Just get my coffee. Enough with the ambition.
2: Yeah, I think that – I don't think that people looked upon me – like, you know, um, glowingly in that process, but I just kind of realized that if I was going to make it as a reporter, that I was going to have to do things that may, you know, may make me less popular with people, um, that weren't going to be making that decision. Um, and that, you know, that's just sort of, sort of the thing. Um, the thing that I really ran into was that I was for, for a, a period of for a significant period of time when I was basically trying to become a reporter, I was kicked out of the building. So what happened was is that because I wasn't a reporter, the union had me kicked out of the building because I was potentially taking stories away from union employees because I was being compensated because um, I was a clerk and then I was being compensated as a as a freelancer, essentially, even though I was writing all the time. And I basically had to go home to my apartment, was kicked out of the building and had to figure out from my apartment, this really dark, small apartment on the Upper East side, figure out how to cover drugs and sports because basically I'd been told that the only pathway that I was going to have to being a reporter was to learn how to cover this burgeoning off the field, legal issues, drugs and sports that most sports reporters didn't want to do. So even without having access to the editors, I had to figure out how to do that from home. That is professionally the hardest thing I did. This, the second professionally most difficult thing I've ever done is written the book. But but learning how to cover drugs from home while trying to get hired as a reporter was 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 the most difficult.
0: Wait, time out. Um, questions. When you get kicked out, is there literally someone who says you cannot come into the building anymore? Correct, yeah. Someone actually says, you have to get out of the building.
2: Yeah, no, the union had complained to the, the newsroom leadership, and they said, Mike's got to leave the building.
0: <laughs> What's that feeling like? Well, I, you're like 20-something years old. It was awful. It was really, really awful. But there was two choices.
2: I could get upset about it and throw a fit, um, and, and or I could just shut up and just try and figure out how to cover drugs from home. Um, I could have gone back to clerking, full time. Um, but that wasn't going to put me on the path to becoming a reporter. So there was really nothing to do. It was really, it was humiliating. Um, but I realized that if I was going to make it as a reporter, I had to just kind of shut up and go home and try and figure out how to do
0: it. See, I think there's something really unique in that. I just think there's a, um, I always think like, what is it about people who survive in this business, right? Is it talent? Yeah, to a certain degree. Is it, you know, whatever smarts to a certain degree, I just think resiliency and getting smacked down and coming back and getting embarrassed and coming back and having people tell you you're not going to make it and coming back is profoundly important.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I filed a, a WNBA story in this period of time that was, on, that was close to deadline. That was such a mess that they couldn't run it. Um, and that was like a, like a really humiliating experience. Um, you know, and I could have given up, um, and, you know, there was a lot of stuff that didn't go right in that. And there's a lot of editors who didn't call me back when I was trying to figure out how to, you know, get them on the phone to do this stuff. And, and I think that the ability to stick to, and, and, and I use like a, a more simplistic form of resilience. It's just like the ability to get things done. Being a reporter is really just the ability to get sort of odd, unusual Uh, difficult tasks um, done and if you can get them done then you can get the story because you have to call people you have to find people you have to figure out things and it's the ability to simply just get things done that I think is what makes um, someone a you know um, a successful reporter
0: Yep. let me ask you a final question Um, I just had this conversation with my wife the other day so my book came out September 22nd I did you know Probably 160 interviews. I promoted it. I did all the different sports radio, TV, blah, 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 blah. And then you're kind of done, right? Then you're done. And then, so you, you worked on the, I worked on this book for two years. Here it is. It's out. I'm promoting it. I'm talking about it. Hey, everyone, here's my book. And then you kind of move on to whatever you're doing in life. And I always ask myself, and especially after this one, I was like, is it, is it worth it? Is the heartache, the pain, the editing, the cuts, the blah, 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 the criticism, everything, is it worth it? And I don't really have an answer for myself. For you, you have this book. You busted your ass and made the New York Times list. It's a great book. Um, was it worth it? So the first thing is that it, this is my first book, and
2: it might be my last. And uh, the, the fall off, which you describe, which is like the initial burst, and then like the way that it just sort of drops is really remarkable. And people had talked about it to me and had said, you know, this happens, but I certainly didn't appreciate it. It's really remarkable, like how it just like goes and then, and then it doesn't. And, and you're just kind of like, what? Um, So that, that, that has been really uh, jarring and shocking. Um, And um, is it worth it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to have to forget a lot about um, the difficulties of it before doing it again. Um, because it's really, really hard. It's like, like I thought about it, like, like if, if, if journalism was like basketball, like newspaper reporting is like dribbling with your right hand and your left hand, you know, some people dribble with their right, you know, one's reporting and writing, you know, you kind of like have two things. Like the writing a book is like the full gauntlet. It's like, you got to be able to dribble. You got to be able to hit a bank shot. You got to hit a three point shot. test you in ways. Your foul shot. You know, can you get down the, It just tests you in all these different ways. And you're making like hundreds of thousands of decisions about all different things. And you're sort of out there in a way um, that you're not um, as a newspaper reporter. And it's just it's it's just a, it's 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 like the ultimate test of you um, as a journalist. Um, and I'm and it's not a, uh, it doesn't come without pain.
0: That was very, very, very well said. It's also funny how like when you're heat when you're in the heat of it all, it's like, yeah, we want you on uh, morning Joe and then you're going to be doing this and then you're going to be doing that. And by the end you're like, wait, is it AM radio station? And Fargo wants me on. Okay. What time can I do it? It's like that drop off is, I feel like it is impossible be prepared for Even when you go through it multiple times, it is always jarring.
2: No, it just is. not it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 guys. I didn't get done saying everything I want to say about the book. Like I, didn't, I didn't get done trying to sell it to every single, you know. It's just a, um, it, it just is. And then it's like, wait, 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 hold on. Like I did, I, I mean, this was like a two and a half year project. And um, I'm like, whoa, 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 it's not over. It's not over. It's not over. It's over.
0: Wait do you see it uh, selling for a dollar books a million. Then you know you made it, you know, five years from now. That's the, uh, the moment we all have at some point. Well, listen, the book is great. Huge, huge admire of your work and also huge admire of seeing a guy go from sports to news and the way you have and your reporting. And uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Seriously. it's great. It's a real pleasure. It's a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I want to thank today's guest, Michael S. Schmidt, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Michael on Twitter at NYT Mike, read his work in the New York Times, and buy Donald Trump: Be the United States wherever books are sold. Also, a reminder: please, please, if you haven't yet, vote. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember,
1: keep writing.